Section 1 of the Early Hanoverians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. Book 1. The Long Peace. Chapter 1. Europe after Utrecht. In the year 1713, the quaint Dutch city of Utrecht was the scene of an important ceremony. It took place in a house which has been since pulled down to make room for a barrack, then the residence of the Bishop of Bristol, probably the last English bishop ever employed upon such an errand. Yet the ceremony was one in which a bishop might well take an interest, for it was the ceremony of signing a treaty of peace, which put an end to a long, wearisome, and bloody war. A great many treaties claim notice in history, each professing to be a general pacification of Europe, but many seem really to be little more than truces. Very few years elapse from the date of their signature, and the nations are found at war again. A treaty of peace settles boundaries until another war may be ended with another peace. The attention, however, of the student must be claimed by the more important treaties, and such importance must mainly be decided by the permanence of the arrangements which they make. The Peace of Utrecht closes a period of fighting which may nearly be described as coinciding with the reign of Louis XIV, King of France. Little alteration was made in the boundaries of Western Europe from the signing of the Peace of Utrecht to the time when the French Revolution, filling the people of France with a new spirit, began to excite the neighboring nations. In this period of eighty years, there was only one great European war at all to be compared in scale or intensity with the wars of the preceding century, that namely which is called the Seven Years' War. During the first half of the period, the part which forms the subject of this little volume, of the two great rivals, France and England, neither was disposed to fight. France was exhausted by her efforts, crippled by debt, and badly governed. England was under the rule of an enlightened minister, who saw that peace was the best gift he could give his country. Not exhausted, indeed, but somewhat dissatisfied with fighting other people's battles. During the second half of the period, England was consolidating her dominion in India, and then became engaged in an unfortunate struggle with her colonies in America. France, which had suffered great losses both in India and in America, latterly helped the colonies of England to free themselves and become the United States. Neither the Seven Years' War nor the smaller wars of these eighty years made much difference in the map of Europe. The date of the Treaty of Utrecht may then be taken as a suitable point for a survey of the political geography of Europe in the 18th century. Without doubt, France was the most important country. It required coalitions of other nations with long and united efforts to check her career of conquest, and though she was now exhausted by the struggle and was no longer what she had been before Marlborough's victories, yet she could still hold her own against any single nation. The Treaty of Utrecht came most opportunely for France. The Grand Alliance had beaten her, and was preparing to follow up its series of victories by actual invasion of her territory. 
Had the movements of the Allied armies been governed by a single mind, terms of peace might have been dictated to her under the walls of Paris. But diversity of counsel is the weakness of an alliance, and France profited by the vacillation and discord among her enemies. On the south, west, and northwest, there are distinct natural boundaries for France. Her eastern and northeastern boundary line has frequently changed according as in her numerous wars this warrior nation has succeeded or failed. It is not now, and was not at the time of the Treaty of Utrecht, marked throughout by natural features, but the following differences must be noted between the frontier of that time and the frontier marked in maps of our day. Alsace, the province between the Vosges Mountains and the Rhine, was then under French rule, though since the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and 71 it has belonged again to Germany, and some parts of the Duchy of Lorraine are now French, though then the whole duchy was independent, except the three bishoprics of Metz, Toul, and Verdun, in the duchy, yet not of it, formed outposts of France. Without Lorraine, Alsace seems to have no right to belong to France, it juts into Germany like a long, narrow peninsula, with the narrowest isthmus of junction near Belfort. Before Utrecht, the French had held a few towns across the Rhine, but at the peace these were ceded. The Rhine was the French boundary from the town of Bâle to the little town of Rastatt, where the treaty was signed between France and the Emperor in the year after Utrecht. Avignon was the territory of the Pope. Dotted about France, there were still duchies with rights more or less independent of the French crown. Although the greater French kings and their ministers had uniformly pursued a policy of consolidation, there remained in France a great deal of political independence arising out of feudalism and a great variety of provincial laws and customs with the force of law. These distinctions were not swept away until the Revolution. In reckoning the power of France, account must be taken of Spain, for on the throne of Spain there sat a French prince, and although the strongest pledges had been given that the crowns of the two countries should not be united, similar pledges had been disregarded, and princes of the same house might be expected to cooperate for its common advantage. But Spain had lost much of her power. She had been shorn of almost all her outlying possessions. The Low Countries had fallen to Austria, together with Milan, Naples, and Sardinia, Sicily to the Duke of Savoy. Later an exchange was made between Sardinia and Sicily. The Duke of Savoy became King of Sardinia, whilst the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, that is, Sicily and Naples, were made an appanage for a younger son of the House of Austria. The only European possession outside the peninsula remaining to Spain was the Balearic Islands, and even of these, England held Minorca. On the mainland also, England kept tight control of Gibraltar, which she had won during the recent war. It must be remembered, however, that of late years, the various provinces which Spain held in different parts of Europe had not proved a source of strength to her, but of weakness. Some have maintained that she was in a stronger position without them. The neighboring country Portugal, moreover, may be described as a perpetual blister in the side of Spain, always inclined to be in favor of England, 
because of Spain's natural alliance with France. Spain's position may be summed up in the remark that her ancient renown gave her still an importance in Europe, which her present power hardly justified. In Italy, Austria had succeeded to the position formerly held by Spain, the preeminence amongst the secular princes. The states of the Church occupied all the central part of the peninsula from the borders of the Duchy of Naples as far as the mouth of the Po. Besides Austria, the Pope, and Savoy, there were four duchies, Tuscany, Parma, Piacenza, Modena, and three republics, sole representatives of the republican spirit which had distinguished the Italian cities in earlier history, Luca, Genoa, Venice, not to mention the tiny commonwealth of San Marino. Tuscany, which had risen out of the medieval republic of Florence, took the lead among the duchies, and was called a Grand Duchy. Venice was far the strongest of the cities, having recently recovered from the Turks her dominion in the Morea, though she was soon again to lose it, and still holding some of the Ionian Isles and some of the mainland across the Adriatic. Italy, with ten governments, was a house divided against itself, and helped to make Austria strong without being strong herself. The most important item in the Treaty of Utrecht was the transfer from Spain to Austria of the government of the Low Countries or Netherlands, henceforth known as the Austrian Netherlands. The Dutch certainly engaged in the war of the Spanish succession in order that they might themselves be secure against the attacks of France. Their country had, within memory of the living, suffered terribly from unjustifiable invasions of the French. The English, also in that war, were swayed by considerations for the Dutch as well as by other motives. All Marlborough's campaigns, with the single exception of that of Blenheim, were directed to the clearing of the French out of the Low Countries prior to making an attack upon France itself. In all probability, if the cession of the Low Countries could have been made by Spain at once, the war would have been altogether avoided. The Dutch regarded it as essential to their safety that between their country and France there should be a tract of land belonging to a government not under the dominion of France. To obtain this barrier they had lavishly expended treasure and blood, and their finances were now heavily crippled by debt. Having obtained it, they practically retired from the field of European politics and took little part in future European wars. Frederick the Great said that from the accession of William III, Holland was following the policy of England, nothing more than a little boat sailing in the wake of a powerful ship. It might fairly be answered that the captain was seated in the little boat, giving his commands how the ship should steer. For until the Dutch cut themselves adrift after the Treaty of Utrecht, England may be said to have followed a Dutch quite as much as Holland and English policy. It is truer still to say that both pursued a European policy, and no praise can be too strong for the heroic stand made by this little country in the cause of freedom. Outside the immediate circle of European politics, Holland had an importance of her own in the possession of many colonies. Her colonial empire was not even so large as that of England, 
but it was of considerable extent. Ceylon then belonged to Holland. Germany was a most divided country. It contained the enormous number of between five and six hundred independent or almost independent states, for they owed a nominal allegiance to the emperor. This large number, of course, included not only electorates and duchies, but also prince bishoprics and free cities. It is only in our own day that unity has come to Germany, and it has not come in any way through the action of Austria. The various German princes, keeping up each a little court as far as possible in imitation of the French court at Versailles, ground down their unfortunate subjects with heavy taxation. If now and then there was a kindly and good prince, he was the exception rather than the rule. The emperor was still called emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. There was still a nominal election to the office, but practically the emperor elected was always the head of the family of Habsburg, the House of Austria. Austrioi est imperari orbi universo was still the proud boast of this proud family. Austria should rule the world. But even those who made the boast must have felt how false it was. Once the head of this house was not emperor only, but king of Spain, ruler of the Netherlands and of large portions of Italy. Then came a separation between the two branches of the house. The Netherlands had gone with Spain, but the Spanish Habsburgs had ended, and now the Treaty of Utrecht gave the Netherlands back to Austria. The hereditary dominions of the House of Austria formed the nucleus of her power, and very various these dominions were. It was curious that the chief power in Germany should be in the hands of a sovereign, the chief part of whose own dominions was not really German at all. The extent of the Austrian dominions was nearly the same as that of the Austrian Empire today, in which the German element is proportionately small. In the course of this history it will be seen how Hungary, a non-German possession, proved itself of great importance to the House of Austria. Of the other German states, Saxony was very much divided. The princely family had first split into two lines, one of which established primogeniture, the other did not. The representative of the first line was called the Elector of Saxony. His name was Augustus the Strong, a name earned by physical, not moral qualities, and he was at this time also the elected king of Poland. The elector of Saxony later became a king. The other line divided and subdivided itself till it had become a heap of small separate states, all those namely that begin with the prefix Saxa, such as Saxa Weimar and Saxa Coburg. Another elector, the Elector of Brunswick, was just about to become King of England, and the Elector of Brandenburg was the King of Prussia, having received the title from the Emperor in order that the Prussian troops might be secured to the side of the Emperor and the Grand Alliance in the Spanish Succession War. It cannot be too often impressed upon learners that by the German title Elector, Kurfürst, is meant one who has a right to vote at the election of the emperor of the so-called Holy Roman Empire. Until the middle of the 17th century, there were seven electors, three archbishops, and four secular princes. The prelates were those of Mainz or Mayence, Treves and Cologne. 
The secular princes were the Margrave of Brandenburg, the Elector of Saxony, the King of Bohemia, and the Elector Palatine. Any title less than king was gladly merged in the proud title of elector. To these seven, the Duke of Bavaria was added at the Peace of Westphalia. For years he had held the dominions and therefore claimed the vote of the Elector Palatine. Lastly, the Duke of Brunswick Lüneburg was made the ninth elector because he joined the Grand Alliance. Poland was in a very unsatisfactory condition, always in danger of setting her neighbors' houses on fire. The causes were the elective monarchy and the turbulence of the nobility. The danger of an elective monarchy is that the faction which is defeated at the election may resent its defeat and take up arms on behalf of its candidate. Such armed intervention occurred more than once in Poland. The elections were always more or less riotous, neighboring nations often trying to profit by the confusion. Some forty years before the Treaty of Utrecht, Poland had in the person of John Sobajewski a hero for a king. The hero who drove back the Turks from Vienna. But Poland needed a statesman rather than a hero. The elector of Saxony, Augustus the Strong, was elected to succeed Sobieski, and reigned until he was defeated by Charles XII of Sweden, who told the Poles to elect another king, whereupon they elected one of their own nobles whose name was Stanislav Leszczynski. He, however, was only able to reign as long as Charles XII was able to maintain him. On the fall of Charles, Leszczynski retired to France, of which country his daughter afterwards became queen consort. These characters reappear in the course of this history. Behind Western Europe lay a ring of states less advanced in civilization. In the Northeast there was still continuing rivalry, if not actual contest, between these two remarkable men, Charles Twelfth of Sweden and Peter the Great of Russia. The latter had the more persevering nature, the greater desire for material progress, as well as the greater resources. Russia was becoming in every way a greater nation than Sweden, and from this time forward, in great European wars, the part that Russia would play had always carefully to be considered. Sweden, after the time of Charles XII, practically retired from interference in the affairs of Europe, and pursued henceforth the same policy as Holland and for the same reason. Moreover, a new power, the Turks, had by this time secured a place in Europe, much to the disgust of many, who thought that no efforts would have been too great to keep them out of Christendom. End of section 1